Welcome to another edition of Nature Revisited, the podcast. My name is Stefan Van Norden, and on this episode, we welcome Colton Carlson for Nature's Embrace. Colton is a retired Marine who lost both of his legs while doing a tour of duty in Afghanistan. Colton joins me to talk about his life before and after his assignment from his home in Vermont, where he and his family have settled after Colton earned a degree in mathematics from Dartmouth College. Colton, welcome to Nature Revisited. I first met you about a year ago at a bus station. You were on your way to South America for a hiking expedition. We struck up a conversation about your relationship with nature. And before you left, I asked if you would be interested in doing an episode on Nature Revisited. And here we are. Thank you for joining me today. It's an honor to have you on the podcast. Thanks for having me, Stefan. Been a long time since I met you for the first time. I'm super excited to be able to sit down and chat with you. So let's start at the beginning. You were born on the Front Range in Colorado, and you moved to Leadville when you were young. How did the mountains of Colorado help shape your relationship with nature? I would say that it played a huge role to be that close to nature. Growing up, the options for things to do basically centered around outdoor activities. Did a lot of hiking with my dad. He taught us how to ski and snowboard. It actually kind of got in the way of other activities, kind of distracted me from school and some of the the organized sports that I tried to participate in. Every time we were out there practicing, I was kind of thinking of the other things I might be able to be doing with the, with the beautiful weather. It really, really shaped not just the things that I enjoy doing, but the way that I look at a space. I don't enjoy the enclosed space of the city. The idea in my head is, when can I get out and where am I going to go? When did you first start thinking of joining the Marines? And how was your training there connected with nature? I would say at a very young age, I decided that I was going to someday be a Marine. My mom's dad, so my grandpa, was a Marine. I had another uncle that was a Marine, and really it was just that kind of that small seed that was planted in my mind. I guess I looked up to these guys and associated the Marine Corps with their character. Growing up, you know, everybody kind of has that adulthood on the horizon. We're all looking forward to being grown up someday, and we can do all these things that we think we can't do when we're kids. For me, it was, you know, when I'm 18, I can join the Marine Corps and I can, I can have this experience, kind of fulfill this, this, this plan that I've had. Did you see the Marines as a way of connecting further with nature? You know, I did. In a kind of an abstract way, I joined the infantry as a Marine. So the infantry is kind of the quintessential job description when we think of a soldier or a Marine the job of the infantryman is to be out there, whether it's in the, the forest, the mountains, the desert. That's a big part of our training is going from kind of biome to biome, 
and learning how to conduct warfare in these different types of terrain. So I would say in, a, in an abstract way, I don't think I ever put that two and two together, but the idea of being outside, you have a pack on your back, everything that you need is contained within that pack, and you have the physical strength to move that year over any type of terrain. That, that really appealed to me. Your relationship with nature, from my point of view, is very much connected with the Marines. Yep. And what happened in Afghanistan. So when did you deploy to Afghanistan and what role did nature play in your deployment? Yeah, we deployed in uh, February of 2012. It was supposed to be a seven month deployment. That's kind of standard. You know, again, as an infantryman, you're placed wherever it is that you need to operate, you're placed there because that physical presence that ultimately wins wars. You know, we hear a lot about drones and airstrikes and all of these futuristic methods of conducting warfare. But at the end, we still haven't progressed beyond the point where it, it, it literally takes a, a physical presence on the ground in order to make, make a real difference. We were in a river valley. Terrain was mostly desert, but there were some grand mountains on the horizon. People ask me a lot, you know, how hot was it there? I never experienced notable heat. It was very cold and it was damp. And I remember one of the most exposed kind of cold experiences that I've had was in Afghanistan during the winter. We went out on a night patrol that was not supposed to last the entire night. So the gear that I brought with me was gear that I thought I would need if we were to keep moving on this patrol. But we ended up having to set up and spend the night out there. I don't know what the temperature was, but it was it was cold enough that at a certain point I I kind of stopped shivering and I stopped feeling cold and that's generally not a great sign when you start when you stop suffering that's uh, that's a bad sign. A lot of people who have been to Afghanistan they mention that it is really a place that almost hard to imagine being on this planet, that it's very, very different from any place else. Can you kind of describe it? Yes, I will describe both the geography and the population. The place that we were, you definitely had a sense of being in the past. The farming implements that some of them were using, we were in that area not because of the local population, but because of the transient population, i.e. the Taliban that was passing through. They they tend to use those under developed areas to operate because there is uh, it's much easier for them to pass through undetected and it was just really eye-opening to see the farming methods from a time that I'm not familiar with we were in a river valley and the river ran north to south and along both sides of the river were ridge lines with a plateau on one side it was quite smooth and on the eastern side a little more rugged there was a mountain there but the river flowed through we made the mistake of drinking from the river uh, one time and it made us all very sick. We operated fairly close to the base that we were living in, but if we were to venture out more than we did, it, the terrain would have been much more of a factor in the overall experience. So what was your role as a Marine? What was your duty there? My entire Marine Corps career lasted about two and a half years up to the point that I was injured. And so... Everything happened, I would say, at an accelerated rate. I did well in boot camp and the School of Infantry, and I received a meritorious promotions. By the time I hit the fleet, which is what we call 
the normal Marine Corps, my rank was advanced beyond my time in service. I quickly obtained a team leader position as we trained and worked up toward our first deployment, which the, my Afghan deployment was actually my second deployment. My first deployment was aboard a ship on the USS Essex. In between the two deployments, I had a period of about three months where I was able to act as the squad leader for my squad. I was exposed to more responsibility than I otherwise would have been. Going into the actual combat deployment, I served as a team leader in my squad. The squad is broken up into three fire teams. Each fire team consists of four Marines, and each fire team has a fire team leader, so he's one of the four. The job of the fire team leader is to really keep a close eye on the condition of his three Marines to make sure that they're effective going into whatever the mission happens to be. And the team leader is also responsible for controlling the movement of those Marines. The fire team leader is responsible for working with the squad leader and making sure that his fire team is in the right place at the right time to, to, to get the job done. Everyone has a different relationship with nature. What happened on that fateful day that changed yours forever? So the day was May 8th, 2012. We had been in Afghanistan for about three months. The mission had changed at that point. We had moved all of our operations back to Camp Leatherneck, which is the big multinational military base. My company was a helo company or a helicopter company. The plan was to operate out of Leatherneck and conduct helo raids and operations to various parts of the country and then return to Leatherneck in between missions. It was actually the first of those helo raids. We set out May 8th, 2012, early, early morning before the sun came up. The plan was that we were going to insert north and then push to the south and clear out the Taliban that we knew was in the area and give the Afghan National Army a little bit of breathing room. So we inserted early in the morning and we met with fire at about sunrise. You know, that's generally when, when you'd get into a gunfight. Throughout the day, we pushed our way south, kind of off and on firefights, till we found a location that was suitable for setting in security. My squad was responsible for the security of the assault in the valley. So we were actually up on the ridge line to the west. And it just so happened that the spot that we were in when it was time to set up security for the night was near a Russian trench line. It was a meticulously laid out trench line that ran north and south for almost as far as you could see along that trench. The problem with that is that it, it basically eliminated any other options as far as where we could set in and maintain eyes on the valley and do everything that we needed to do. And so we all, we were all fairly uneasy about setting in at this location, but we did have an MRAP, um, a mine resistant ambush protected vehicle. So we had this truck come over, roll the whole area, should give you a pretty, pretty good feeling just to make sure that we had covered all of our bases. We also had metal detectors and we swept an area. So what you do is you sweep out the lanes, you mark them, and then you just use the predetermined paths to move about the area. So we did all of that. My job at that point was to travel around to my team, check their, their food, their water, their ammunition, which a lot of that had been just depleted throughout the day. 
I was going around making sure that people had what they needed going into the evening. You know, the sun's going down. It's going to get dark. You know, once it's dark, we need to be done moving. I walked out to one of my guys along one of the predetermined routes that we had cleared, checked on him during my return trip to to my own location along that same exact path. I triggered a pressure plate initiated IED that had been placed there and had somehow made it past the mine roller, past the metal metal detectors, past all of our visual searching. (laughs) You know, it really was well hidden. I triggered that IED. It was a pressure plate. It was homemade explosive and it was a lot of, it was a lot of explosive and it detonated directly beneath me, which threw me into the air, tilted me back. I landed on the back of my head. At first I didn't really understand what had happened. But it happened so quickly, I felt like I had been hit over the back of the head with the refrigerator. My experience was that I had to figure out where I was, what I was doing, what had happened, and I had to start from kind of from scratch. So I started moving my hands around, and I saw, okay, I have hands, they're moving. And then I I looked around, and I saw the other Marines. So then things started to come back to me. I thought maybe I had been run over by that truck. That was kind of my you know, aha moment. Like I said, this happened in a matter of a couple seconds. And finally, I was like, you know what? I don't know what happened, but I'm going to get up. I'm going to start moving around, dust myself off. And when I tried to sit up, my my legs came up. And that's when I realized that I no longer had any legs. I saw what had happened to my legs. My rifle had been broken into three pieces. And at that point, I knew either I had stepped on an IED or I had been hit by mortar fire. And so at that point, I don't want to say it, the training kicks in because what you don't train for is the uh, the existential battle that's occurring in your mind. You you definitely do think about well, what is it going to mean if I survive? You know, what is this? What is life going to look like? Do I want to survive? And I was fortunate because in that back and forth process in my mind, I had a lot of good reasons to stay alive. The pain and the terror of being damaged like that didn't stand a chance when I com- compared it to my family. The difference between them hearing that I had died in Afghanistan and them hearing that I had been injured, I very quickly decided I was going to create a situation where they had to deal with my injuries and not my death. The Marines that were with me very quickly responded. They used their metal detectors to clear another route up to me. They called in Kazavak request took about 40 minutes to arrive. It was a Black Hawk helicopter with Air Force PJs on it. 40 minutes laying there on, on the top of that ridge line, I would say definitely the loneliest, most terrifying 40 minutes of my life. I would say that loneliness was the, the predominant emotion. You know, we were out there a ways. I mean, it took 40 minutes just for a helicopter to get to us. As I lay there, I could feel that distance. As this process developed, when did you first realize that nature would play a major role in your recovery? Yeah, immediately. Between the field hospital in Afghanistan and launch tool Germany, I, I was I was asleep. I guess this really happened when I got back to the States, back to Maryland, because when I returned to the United States, they told me about prosthetic legs, prosthetic technology, and in my own mind, I decided three things. I decided that I was going to train 
to walk on these prosthetic legs so well that, you know, people wouldn't immediately know that I was missing legs. And then my second and third goal were to get back into skiing or snowboarding and to get back into climbing mountains. Like I said, I did a lot of climbing and hiking in Colorado growing up. And so very, very quickly, that was my benchmark of success. The title of this episode is Nature's Embrace. Can you describe and share how nature embraced you and continues to do so? I think really the the biggest thing as far as my recovery goes was that I had these grand lofty goals that really drove me on a daily basis to do more. I literally every day I thought, you know, what do I need to do to get back on top of a mountain? And the answer to that is a lot more than you think. Nature really, it drove me to do more for myself than I otherwise would have. And it also gave me an opportunity to recover. And so I had opportunities to get out and kayak, ski, snowboard, tried sit skiing for the first time. It gave me a template for more rapid recovery and a more thorough recovery than I think I would have had without the mountains as the the motivator. So did your idea of the challenge, because a lot of mountain climbers, the mountain is a challenge. How did nature help maybe change those perceptions? I think that my, my injuries matured me very, very quickly because before I lost my legs, I did have that mindset of success at all costs. And my ego was very much tied into that. And I felt bad about myself personally if I didn't perform the way that I imagined I should. Losing my legs, I feel like I'm kind of acting in defiance by just being out there. And if I make it to the top of a summit, that's wonderful. But I kind of have the ability to turn around now and just say, I came out here and I I walked for as long as as I could, and I turned around when I knew I needed to. An example of that is I traveled down to Ecuador in 2021, September. That's actually where I was headed when we met the first time. The plan was to climb two mountains. We were going to climb Rumanyawi. That was our training climb to uh, ultimately summit Cotopaxi a few days later, which is uh, over 18,000-foot active volcano. And I summited Rumanyawi. The reality about volcanoes is that they are, they're very steep all the way up. Hard to imagine how steep it really is. So, you know, I kind of had this, a bit of a wake up on Rumanyawi. Started on Cotopaxi, early morning start, mid, middle of the night, really. The thing about Cotopaxi is that it still has a, a glacier at the top. You have to get off the glacier by noon. I felt fine. I was climbing. I felt good. I was excited to get to the top because of how steep it was, I just wasn't moving fast enough to get to the summit and off of that glacier before noon. I thought it was going to be a very difficult decision, but when the time rolled around, I was communicating with my guides. I asked them just to let me know when the very last moment that we needed to turn around was going to be, and they they did that. They let me know, and I turned around, and I was off the glacier by noon, didn't make the summit, and I was okay with that. My relationship with the mountains, with nature, it's just a little bit more organic now. I realize where my limits are. 
it really has matured me. My relationship with nature as an adaptive climber, it's a, it's a better relationship. We often talk about how nature can heal. Can you share with us some of the other ways that your relationship with nature has changed both physically and emotionally in that healing process? I feel like outdoor activities played such a big role in my healing. The thing that I wanted to do kind of became the thing that I needed to do during my recovery. The fact of the matter is that the recovery never ends. I say I graduated my program, I was covered in a year or whatever, but it really, it's up and down. That experience is kind of placed under a microscope when you have two prosthetic limbs and you have a busy family life and it's difficult to find time to do all of the things that you need to do for your own health. Um, And so it's kind of an evolving relationship. So how do you see your relationship with nature playing a role in your future? Skiing is really my kind of go-to activity. I, I sit ski now. It's a sit-down mono ski. And I transitioned from the snowboarding to the sit ski because it's a lot easier on my body. I can ski all day long. I actually fatigue less than the other skiers around me. I see going into the future, many of the activities that I like to do with my kids, they, they happen outside. It's, it's definitely an urge. Like the outdoors is where we need to be. And if we been too long in, inside, there's kind of an alarm that goes off. If I can be skiing with my boys in the winter and uh, out on the water in the summer, my relationship with nature going into the future is use it as a catalyst to spend time with my family as well as to continue to recover because that's going to be something I need to do for the rest of my life. The idea that we are nature, that you are now more a part of nature in some ways than you were before. And that that incident in some ways gave you something that you may not have gotten otherwise. Yeah. To answer the question about the role of nature in recovery, my love for nature and the outdoors specifically the mountains. That's, that's really where I, where I go to. That began when I was young, going all the way back to growing up on the front range of Colorado. Colorado is split down the middle. To the right of the mountains is essentially what Kansas looks like, and to the left are the mountains that everyone thinks of when they think Colorado and the Rockies. Some of my growing up on the front range, so far away that the mountains weren't even visible, and I, I remember even at a very young age, uh, when big thunder clouds would build up on the horizon, I would pretend that they were mountains because that was just where I wanted to be. I think that what that kind of afforded me through this entire experience, looking back from where I am now, I feel like my life has been chopped into segments. Some of them don't go together. They don't make sense when when they're placed next to the other segments. The one thing that kind of connects everything is this love for the mountains, this return to the outdoors. That one thing that is kind of a common strand is I find myself in the mountains whenever I can. I hope you enjoyed my conversation 
with Colton Carlson and that you will share this episode. I can think of no better way to honor the men and women of the armed forces than by giving them the opportunity to share their stories. I hope you will share Nature Revisited with family, friends, and colleagues, and that you will follow us on Facebook, YouTube, Instagram, or our website, NordenProductions.com. Nature Revisited is produced by Stefan Van Norden and Charles Gagan, and I hope you will join us for the next edition of Nature Revisited. And in the meantime, remember, we are nature. <laughs>